So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, welcome to Conspirituality, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. And today, we return to the emerging landscape of psychedelics in the American economy. I'm Derek Barris. A reminder that we're on Instagram at Conspirituality Pod, and you can access all of our episodes ad free and our Monday bonus episodes on Patreon, or you can just subscribe to our Monday bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts. As independent media creators, we appreciate your support. So a few weeks ago, I had three members of the psychedelics media platform Symposia on to discuss psychedelic capitalism. Now, as it turned out, one of those researchers, Nache Devineau, published a paper that very week alongside another symposia researcher, Brian Pace. And I wanted to have them on to discuss this paper, which I'll get to in a moment in the interview. Now, I want to flag one thing that Brian says during our discussion. The term set and setting, which was popularized by the famous and some would say infamous cosmonaut Timothy Leary, describes the mindset and the environment that you are in as you undergo a psychedelic experience. Brian mentions that the set and setting of the modern psychedelics movement in America is capitalism. Now, as I've often said on this podcast, I'm all for what works when it comes to therapeutics of any form. 
be it for mental health treatments, we can talk about benzodiazepines, SSRIs, psychotherapy, or psilocybin. But I'm also critical of any intervention that's overly hyped or manipulated because its ultimate utility is seen as profit-generating. Now, that's the basic mindset that I assumed when entering into this conversation today for this conspirituality brief, neoliberal psychedelics. All right, about our guests. Nishay Devineau, PhD, is a postdoctoral associate at the Institute for Research in Sensing at the University of Cincinnati and a Society and Culture Research Fellow at Symposia. Her scholarship examines bioethical approaches to psychedelic medicine, and she conducts research on the function of metaphor and other literary devices in narrative accounts of psychedelic experience. That's awesome. Also awesome is Brian Pace, PhD, who's a lecturer who teaches psychedelic studies at The Ohio State University. Brian was trained as an evolutionary ecologist, specializing in phytochemistry, ethnobotany, and ecophysiology. Brian believes in the psychedelic society movement and other grassroots decriminalization efforts to find alternative policies to the imperial drug war. And he's conducted field work in southern Mexico, the U.S. Midwestern Prairie, and the Ecuadorian Amazon. And now, on to our discussion. Nishay, we touched upon some of the ideas I'm going to talk about today in an episode we ran a few weeks ago called Psychedelic Capitalism. I got a really good response, and I was very happy that the Symposia crew could make it. Today, we're talking about a paper that you wrote with Brian and uh, James Davies, a third author on this. It's called Beyond the Psychedelic Hype, Exploring the Persistence of the Neoliberal Paradigm. And that actually came out just around the same time as our Psychedelic Capitalism episode. So I wanted to have you back because this paper, uh, we could have talked about it then, but I'm glad we get to talk about it now. Uh, But I do want to start with a 101 here because I've noticed that some of our listeners and followers on social media confuse neoliberal with liberalism. And I've often had to kind of jump in and say they are not the same thing. So can you just frame the paradigm that you're discussing here? Yeah, well, it's really, I mean, focused around a market-based, profit-based orientation to structuring society. So neoliberalism like started as a economic system purely in terms of like free trade and open markets and that sort of thing, kind of allowing the the market to make decisions about the best way to distribute resources and kind of organize society. But then over time, it's also kind of percolated out into kind of structuring the ways that people even conceive of themselves as like little micro entrepreneurs kind of with their personal brand and needing to kind of market themselves. So it's really a kind of a way of prioritizing money and certain kinds of material success in terms of how we're um, orienting society. So in in this case, it's related to, you know, healthcare and the provision of healthcare. A neoliberal approach to healthcare is focused around, you know, a 
profit and not just on the well-being of individuals and society. I would just add briefly that, you know, historically situated, it's uh, one easy way of thinking about neoliberalism is uh, a reaction to the New Deal programs, any kind of uh, social welfare, Keynesian economics. All of that was essentially rejected and continues to be rejected in this hyper-individualistic, hyper-capitalist, neoliberal paradigm. Now, I'm reading the book Coke Land right now about the Coke industries and family. And one thing that Christopher Leonard, the journalist who wrote it, brings up early in the book is that Richard Nixon was actually somewhat progressive in the sense that he was still at least following the New Deal and, you know, starting the EPA and different organizations that were actually helpful for society. And was always, it was only post-Nixon and, and in a lot of ways due to the Koch brothers, uh, specifically Charles, that the neoliberal paradigm really set in. In terms of the healthcare aspect, you know, shortly after I read Michael Pollan's article, Trip Treatment, uh, I noticed that there was a lot of venture capital flowing into psychedelics companies. Uh, and it's not like investors are benevolent. You know, some of them are wealthy and they're donating money to nonprofit psychedelic companies. And I think that's a good thing. But for the most part, that doesn't seem to be what's happening in this space. Is that a correct assumption? I mean, they want to return on their investment. And one of the things that's been interesting, particularly in the wake of psychedelic science, is that you know, MAPS uh, built its brand uh, as a sort of a nonprofit pharmaceutical company and said, we're going to do this uh, psychedelic renaissance with donations. But as the shroom boom got underway, investors pretty much stood around and looked at each other and said, why should we donate when we can invest? Yeah, a lot of the investors will say, kind of give this like win-win-win logic to their investment and say, yeah, we want to make money, but we believe that making money in this way is going to be best for everyone and that it will be good for mental health too. So they they will say that it's not just about money, but really money is the is the object here. So are they taking a, a triple bottom line approach, I think was the term they used to use in, in like wellness spaces. Like John Mackey was really big on that like 15 years ago. I was thinking of Mackey. Social entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and conscious capitalism, like mm. these kinds of logic. But a lot of the work that we've done at Symposia has been to really like push back against, you know, the idea that there can be a psychedelic exceptionalism within capitalism, that the capitalism's tactics are the tactics and that they're not, they're ultimately in conflict with things like well-being and, and health. Yeah. El elsewhere, we've argued, you know, that as... As uh, writ large, you know, the, the set and setting of the, the psychedelic renaissance is, is, is capitalism. And ultimately, the idea that psychedelics are going to revolutionize, you know, the economy or our current paradigm rather than vice versa is something that we tend to point out. My previous book before Conspirituality was Hero's Dose. It was self-published. It was about psychedelic therapy. I've been partaking in psychedelics for almost 30 years, uh, you know, on varying levels. And I am both very for any therapeutic applications, but like you guys, I'm a bit of a skeptic in certain ways of this. We went over that a lot in the last episode. And what I realized when I was writing it, as I started writing is, is if I'm talking about this as a potential therapeutic that's replacing something, I had to sort of go into the history of what it's replacing. So that led me to like textile dyes becoming anesthesia and tranquilizers, which led to SSRIs eventually. So I kind of cover the 
only a century. Um, and I'm not anti antidepressants to use a double negative because I, some people are really helped by them, but I've always found it troubling that the insurance industry incentivizes script writing over talk therapy. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Do you think that psychedelics are going to run into the same issue? And like, how far away are we from psychiatry approved mail order microdosing? Some of these are specific policy issues, you know? So I, I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm for what happened over COVID, where there was an opening up of telemed for, you know, ketamine therapy. And so you send a lozenge, you, you meet a, a doctor uh, over the, the phone or on Zoom, and, and then you're good to go. There's some possibility that what's going on in Colorado will create leeway for people to take away. But most of the things going through the FDA, all of the things going through the FDA right now are, uh, you know, like a, a medical assisted uh, therapist or psychologist is in the room with you while you're under the influence. And so, um, yes, Capital would very much like to do that um, as soon as possible. But in terms of how or when that would happen, um, there's definitely investment in like AI and apps for uh, integration, essentially trying to uh, hack away any of the human element to, to cut costs. Um, so we'll see more of that. Do you know of any of the AI? I've just having watched Sam Altman's presentation yesterday, and that is another industry that I'm fascinated by, both in terms of the possibilities, but also what's, what's going to happen. Uh, so what are some of the psychedelic patents going through? Compass Pathways has a system called um, Chantrell. It's a real-time way for therapists to interact with like a central hub. So if you're at a Compass Pathways uh, clinic, uh, this would be in the room with you, I would imagine. It would be analyzing in real-time what, what kind of interaction is going on, but they don't really share a whole lot of information about it. So we can really only assume, but they, they essentially say that they've got a fully um, AI integrated system. In that way, it's sort of framed as, as therapist, real live therapist support. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of kind of pitches, you know, in terms of like using AI to like better identify people who will be like responders to certain kinds of psychedelic treatments, um, in addition to the therapy support. But I mean, a lot of what I have seen, it, it seems like it's kind of trying to ride the wave of excitement around these, both all of these technologies, you know, in combination and trying to attract funding. I don't necessarily think that they are instrumental, like necessary to, um, to integrate it. And I haven't seen anything that suggests that it is extra beneficial to integrate technology. And you're also opening the door to all kinds of like surveillance concerns and um, information concerns, especially because if you're monitoring uh, treatment interactions and then processing it through like AI you know, analytics, then a lot of people are disclosing stuff comes up, you know, that you might not want to share and disclose, but essentially you're providing a way for some of the biggest corporations to get data about your, what makes you tick, your deepest hopes and fears and dreams. And then all of that can be used to sell ads to you. So it's like, there are these, not only is there not a lot of evidence that AI adjuncts are going to help, but there's also a lot of concerns in terms of like 
datafying psychedelic experiences. Yeah, I mean, and Better Health was recently sued for using patient data to do targeted ads for local mental health clinics. Um, so, I mean, we have precedent for it. And what big data approaches typically do is they get a very large data set and then mine it for all kinds of things that were never particularly intended for, you know, or disclosed adequately to the people who contributed to it. So we would expect to see the same. Um, and I mean, I, I would absolutely concur with, you know, the things that um, Shea was saying just a moment ago, which is that, you know, there's really a lot of really sort of deep unconscious stuff that is coming up when people are altered and talking about their biggest traumas. And I, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but uh, let's just say various like dystopian science fiction scenarios of how that might be weaponized um, come to mind. Right. One thing we discuss often on the podcast is cult indoctrination and a tried and two technique is that you get information that's personal about the person and then you leverage it against them. Uh, during the last time we had uh, Nishay and others on uh, the podcast, we talked a bit about the training protocols. I'd like to get your take on how you see these emerging, Brian. Like, is the facilitator assisted model the correct way or, or, or a correct way at least? And do you think these trainings are robust enough to keep away people who might take advantage of patients. I've already seen some examples where that wasn't the case. So how how are regulations going in that sense? What's being proposed, at least with MAPS, is, you know, one one individual is a therapist and the other is um you know, not necessarily required to have credentials. And so, you know, there's a, a lot of ways that that has, has already led to, to harm in clinical trials. But what the trainings are and you know, how this is all being uh, proposed, there, there's actually been some recent work on these topics that are problematizing um, various aspects of how unstudied some of these therapeutic modalities are in the sense that FDA, as, as was some of this was explored by our colleagues and also um, by Nishay as well, like you know, the therapy itself is not necessarily something that FDA has any experience with or purview to uh, regulate, you know. And it, it currently is one of these things where you have a lot of um, confounding variables coming from the therapist, from um you know, whether or not we're talking about how much um, care is given uh, to people who in these research studies you know, using how much care they're receiving in terms of time um, or uh, effort by the therapist because they know that they are in the treatment group and not the control group. Um, it, it starts to call into question you know, some of the data that's being used to argue that this, you know, should be scaled up and, and turned into a, you know, regulated medical intervention. I was thinking about this from the perspective of the FDA trials. You're probably familiar with ketamine trials, and there has been some pushback against Janssen Pharmaceuticals in the sense that a few of the people in the trial committed suicide after it was over, and they submitted it as evidence that it was working, but then they went back to pre-trial suicidal ideation, even though they didn't have any suicidal ideation before the trials began. So the idea is that they were 
taken off of it too quickly. Like SSRIs, there's no real tapering protocol that anyone knows of for ketamine. So, you know, in one sense, the FDA is kind of fast-tracking psilocybin and, and MDMA studies, but do you think that it's being rushed too quickly into the current paradigm of how the FDA is structured? That last question is yes. Yeah, one of the things that like, we touched on in our paper was looking at the example of Australia, because Australia has approved uh, MDMA specifically for PTSD and then psilocybin for, I believe, major depressive disorder. Um, so only those indications. But the um, the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia um, specifically kind of they overrode their own expert panel. They had kind of commissioned research to be done to look into the quality of evidence to support the you know the approval of these drugs for these specific indications. And the their own expert panel and report it came back to say that the quality of the evidence and the research to date is not that good for some of the reasons like Brian already mentioned um, that you, we should expect that the way these trials are designed, that the, the numbers are currently inflated, that there's, it, they're, they're, it's not going to be, you know, 80% cure rate for, you know, being able to quit smoking when it's actually rolled out. Um, so although there's lots of methodological issues that are kind of causing some doubts about how effective these are as pharmaceutical kind of interventions, specifically under the current healthcare system that we have, it's still through lobbying in that case, it was still pushed through despite the questions about the quality of evidence. And part of our larger point about the paper that we wrote, we co-wrote it with, um, with James Davies, who had not been writing about psychedelics, but was writing about the pharmaceutical SSRI in a depressant landscape. And we originally got in touch with him. We invited him to our, we ran this psychedemia conference um, in 2022. Um, and we had specifically, I, I messaged him or I, I tweeted on, about the parallels between he's, because he was talking about, it's not, it's, it's the, the for-profit rollout of SSRIs that are kind of minimizing the support. You just write a script, like you were saying, and you just have someone take a pill, that that approach to giving people SSRIs is likely undermining their effectiveness because it's like just giving a pill to someone is not going to solve their life troubles, their the fact that their their lead is their their water is full of lead, the fact that they're, you know, struggling to keep food on their their plate and take care of their kids and hold hold down three jobs. And that if psychedelics are rolled out with the same mentality of no support, no addressing root causes, just here is your, you know, your dose of this ego dissolution causing substance and then go back to your regular exploitative, exploitative life, that that's going to likely lead to the same disappointing outcomes that we saw with SSRIs that were rolled out in that same way. One of the points that we try and convey is that the problems with the larger mental health system as it currently is functioning in that it's putting quite a bit of burden on individuals as being the, the carriers and the, the responsible party for their dysfunctional brain chemistry or their, their broken personalities. When much of this is fundamentally uh, a result of being subject to systemic stressors uh, where, you know, you would see an improvement in a person's mental health uh, if they joined a union and got a 20% increase in their pay 
pay and, and better benefits, that you would see a, a much larger increase in their mental health than practically any of these pharmaceutical psycho interventions, whether we're talking about SSRIs or even the, the new hot ones that are being hyped right now. You know, the example you're using with ketamine you have experience with psychedelics. I have experience with psychedelics. I don't dislike psychedelics. I've had, you know, healing experiences. I've had confusing experiences. And they've also been fairly nonlinear. Some of those insights took years to sort through. What we argue in this paper is that by shoehorning these kinds of relations into a medicalized neoliberal model that fundamentally is pursuing profit for the, you know, the people who own and run the clinics, many of the researchers who are arguing for this are sitting on the boards of these companies and will likely profit uh, tremendously if the best case scenario happens. Um, but also that, you know, all of this is uh, a part of a larger way that mental health is viewed in society where you are to be uh, a functioning worker. And if you have the SADs and you can't work, then go in there and get that fixed. If that is the goal with psilocybin therapy, with MDMA therapy, it's going to have the same underwhelming outcomes that we saw from SSRIs uh, or barbiturates. When, when we really think back to barbiturates and stimulants, in some ways there was a little bit more honesty. You know, the house, housewife or mama's little helper. These were people who had a lot on their shoulders. They were running families and households, and it was literally communicated during those those times in, in advert, advertisements that this was to deal with the external pressures, not to fix something that's fundamentally wrong with you. The blahs was something that Milltown was prescribed for in the 1950s. <laughs> Uh, that was the first billion-dollar drug. It's such a challenging situation. So I've talked to people like Robert Whitaker, the founder of Madden America. I've talked to people over at Madden America. I talked to Lauren Slater, who's been on Prozac since the 80s. Uh, she told me she would love to try psychedelics, but it's contraindicated to Prozac, so she can't. Uh, and she talks about dependence issues. And so we're in this situation, and I talked to a lot of psychiatrists. So I, I was on a benzodiazepine. Uh, fortunately, I only took it like once a week because I had severe anxiety disorder, but I also knew the dangers. And I think that a lot of people, it's very easy to get hooked on Xanax. It's a very seductive state when you're anxious, and it does calm, at least according to trials, 50% of the people down, and I was part of that. One thing you drill home in this paper, you know, is the DSM and you write that, you know, in the in the 1970s there was 106 diagnostic categories and there's 365 today and there is an argument that if you can invent more and more problems, you can sell more and more solutions. Uh, do you fear that that's going to happen as psychedelics become legalized? It's already happening. And you were talking earlier about patents, uh, but our colleagues, David Nichols and Russell Hausfeld at Symposia, wrote a paper that uh, more or less the title is like Compass Pathways is trying to patent more health, uh, mental health conditions uh, than you can name. This is uh, psilocybin for oppositional defiant disorder, for pyromania. And yes, those are both real examples. And so this is a tell, it's an indication that as psychedelic therapy is approved for 
you know, treatment-resistant depression for post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA. There's every indication that we will see off-label use for other conditions. And if that's not the route, then a solid push to go down the list of all of the other different conditions that they already have IP on. There there will be sort of a, a supply-side economics, you know, strategy towards getting this into other contexts. And just on the patent side of things, Porta Sophia is a great resource. Our our colleague Amanda Pratt has done amazing work charting the the tactics that are being used with patents, you know, that are are like many things that are it, from the commons, from public domain, kind of mutual aid sharing or indigenous communities, countercultural communities that were just freely shared on the internet are being scooped up and submitted to patent offices and claimed by these companies that are just like trying to make extra money and to elbow out the competition. So it's not, it's not about actual novelty. It's about, um, you know, uh, kind of cornering the commons and being able to 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 make make a buck off of already known information. And then in terms of the the question about new indications, I mean in my other recent paper that I I wrote, I was talking about the use of ketamine uh field trip health which re- recently folded, but they were pitching ketamine for like job loss stress and like particularly at the blue collar tech workers that were losing their jobs at places like Amazon and, you know, these other Silicon Valley companies. And that's a great a kind of example of the sort of thing that we were interested in when our, with our paper, where there's a lot of indications that the way that psychedelics are being rolled out by these, you know, for-profit companies in many cases are blunting the, 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 the suffering and distress that's actually caused by capitalism and labor disenfranchisement and precarity and, and making this about an individual's responsibility to address their suffering in a way that's distracting from other, like, like unions, as Brian mentioned, other forms of solidarity and actually advocating and, and pulling some of the power back away from these kind of centralized corporations. And that's kind of being obscured by the language that psychedelics are being rolled out with. Yeah, I mean, we make a similar point in this paper when we talk about um, clinical trial uh, currently run by Cybin that is looking at using psychedelic-assisted therapy to treat frontline COVID healthcare workers uh, and their burnout. Now, workplace burnout is not in the DSM, regardless of how dubious that might be. It's just not. Uh, And the World Health Organization recognizes that it's a response to workplace stress. You know, anybody paying attention during the well ongoing pandemic knows that frontline healthcare workers dealt with a lot. And it was due to being under-resourced, the underinvestment uh, in public health generally. And, you know, for all of the, what, the, the clapping, the parades, the, the declarations of their heroism, that's not something that fundamentally has changed. And this, like, individual, you know, solution to what was fundamentally a systemic breakdown. We even go further interrogating some of the common language within psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, and that is a question and a story of heroism where, you know, by becoming the quintessential individual archetype of, of a, her- a hero, you, you heal yourself and then you heal your community. And when you listen to some of the advocates of these therapies talk, they speak in the most grandiose of terms, talking about healing the world. 
you know, via psychedelic therapy. Of course, ignoring the fact that we don't even have enough therapists or mental health care workers in the United States to diagnose the mental health distress of only the children. Speaking of grandiose ideas, you spend a few paragraphs writing about Jordan Peterson and his uh, seven gram psilocybin trip, supposedly. Uh, you know, unfortunately, he has become very tethered to Joseph Campbell. I am a huge fan of Campbell. I do understand his monomyth has some criticisms in the modern age that are worth, uh, you know, listening to. But at the same time, he, for the most part, I think, pushed forward uh, religious studies in, in a fascinating way. But but the Peterson stuff, and one one hand talking about the how amazing psychedelics is, and the other and then the other hand punching down at transgender people. It's just a reminder that psychedelics do not make you a morally upright person. A topic that we explored in a, a previous paper. I don't spend time. We don't spend time thinking about Jordan Peterson because we want to. <laughs> um, but he's such a huge force, and. Yeah. You know, recently we had to comment on the fact that many of the, you know, the folks that are very, very uh, prominent uh, researchers or other cultural figures in the psychedelic movement have, you know, embraced him with with open arms in, uh, I would say, fairly cynical uh, ways. I live in Oregon, so I feel comfortable talking about it because things are decriminalized here. But the last time I picked up psilocybin, I think I paid. Forty dollars for eight grams. Yeah, it's every it's everywhere here. It's just part of the culture. Mm -hmm. But in Oregon, if you want to get psilocybin assisted therapy, it runs about five thousand dollars. Well, you can't call it therapy. It's it's definitely not therapy in Oregon. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's it's psilocybin services. Okay, thank you. Yes. So yes, obviously it will go down as more people get involved. The prices, but that is such a ridiculous disparity in. And and so I'm wondering, like, first of all, I mean, it's it it sets up something you've talked about in many papers, which is the you know disparities of like who can afford it and what communities can access it. But I'm wondering then if all this investment money is flowing in and only a small percentage of people can afford it, how is how is that going to balance itself out in the eyes of these VCs? Well, a lot, a lot of these companies are hoping that insurance is going to pay. You know, a lot of people are thinking of ways of, you know, because if you can, they're talking about psychedelics curing people of, you know, root root issues of behind mental health. And so it's at least talked about as instead of just taking a pharmaceutical pill that addresses the symptoms day in, day out, you have like a limited set of dosing sessions and then have some lasting benefit for however long after. And so people, some groups are hoping that they can demonstrate that the amount of benefit and the length of time afterwards is cost justified for insurance companies to kind of pick up the tab. I think a lot of people are really banking on insurance companies being able to to make the difference because that you're right, if people have to pay out of pocket, it's not realistic. I would agree. I would also say that, you know, some recent sort of demographic exploration um, looking at what is it, the national substance use like survey data has really put a finer point on some of it. These are big, large population studies, you know, where you've got tens 
tens of thousands of people responding. Um, but they're talking about mental health, health distress, uh, suicidal ideation in the last year and such, and like whether or not they had taken a psychedelic in their life or in the last year. And, you know, at first look, some of these data have indicated that like, okay, well, you're not, you're actually less likely to have these kinds of um, mental health distress if you have you know, had some psychedelics. So it's, it's this association, right? When they slice through this data a little bit more, looking at things like race and class income, you know, the folks with more money get more benefit, the larger association and groups like, you know, black people and indigenous people, you know, in, in the United States, they're not seeing any association at all. I mean, I think it's very clear in the, you know, the paper, um, the people who are arguing, um, who did this, these analyses, they interpreted it the way I would. These are structural inequalities that we, we can see that are overshadowing any benefit that psychedelics are, are giving people in these naturalistic settings. Uh, to your point, Nishai, it seems like from an investment perspective, that is such a long-term play because when I go to any cannabis shop here, I still can't use my ATM. I, I have to go and get cash because the banks won't touch it because it's not legal. It's decriminalized, but it's not legalized. And I can't imagine insurance companies touching anything that's not completely federally legalized. All of that is hinging on FDA approval. So the current timelines that I've seen are, you know, next year they're hoping MDMA can pass FDA and then um, maybe the year after. So with, with at least kinds of psilocybin um, or proprietary formulations of psilocybin. And so there's there's people that are anticipating that working and, and, and coming through and kind of banking on it. I mean, literally that that will open up this new industry within which some of these organizations can be first movers. And some of these organizations are positioning this as like literally the future of psychiatry. Like they're at least hoping that this will be the kind of go-to treatment for a range of different psychological issues. So to be a dominant actor in that space, some companies are willing to kind of make a bet in order to see a few years down the line, you know, have that kind of market share. Yeah, there's also a bit of chess being played here where, you know, MAPS is, is seen as the tip of the spear and MAPS has its own, you know, strategies and that it is sort of associated PTSD with the, the veteran. I think that there's a lot of a lot of people doing the math and saying, well, if the VA is on board, then essentially we have this sort of government funded industry and it, it plays out the way a lot of these, you know, folks who claim to be uh, all about market fundamentalism, but it really looks like a transfer of public funds to private coffers. Uh, in this case, psychedelic therapy being offered up as a, a service industry for the, the military industrial complex. Are you aware of any of these companies uh, partnering with pharmaceutical companies like established? I'm thinking in terms of the lobbying power because I don't see this happening without some serious lobbying going on. I know that there's heavy lobbying, you know, like lobbyists are paid and, and interacting, interfacing with Cap people in the capital in DC. I don't know how much that overlaps with the traditional pharmaceutical companies. I do know separately that there are a few companies that have, whether letters of understanding or other kinds of formal collaborations with 
global pharmaceutical companies that are conventionally situated, some of which I believe are, you know, Japanese pharmaceutical companies and, and other other big players with a lot of money in, in, in non-psychedelic pharmaceuticals. I don't know the extent of what that looks like, but I do know there has been some like early interest that those groups are looking at this space. But right now it's my understanding of talking to people in this field, a lot of that big money is still seeing this as too risky and too uncertain to be. So there aren't a lot of huge movers yet based on right now, it's like not completely clear what way things are going to go. Well, let's see if we can land this in in a slightly good note, if possible. Uh, I am (laughs) always trying to remain helpful. Do you see any companies or researchers that are in this space that you think are a good model for moving forward with the legalization in a therapeutic sense or in any in a recreational sense. That's not like really what we do, but I will say that I've actually been heartened by some of the work. And this is something that we've somewhat, you know, been anticipating for a while. And it's nice to see it happening, you know, as psychedelics have been mainstreamed and hyped, they've got a little too big for their britches in some sense. It's a little hard to convince people who aren't already a member of the choir that all of the grandiose things that the folks that are claiming psychedelics can and will do, um, like cure the mental health crisis, that it'll actually bear out. And now we're seeing very serious methodological researchers going through the body of literature, really, and pointing out statistical, methodological concerns, other things that, you know, are pretty common to the industry. And that's why, you know, we're expanding sort of an existing critique of, you know, mental health and pharmaceuticals, psychopharmaceuticals. It's yes, it's 100% continuous in many ways. And we're not even just making predictions. We're talking about things already happening. So those conflicts of interest maybe are, are smaller issues, but you know we're we're also seeing these things being laid out in ways that if somebody really wanted to make these robust and safer, they might have a roadmap for doing the kinds of research that might lead to better you know better outcomes. Um, but fundamentally, it's an open question. You know, as a person who uh, has been sort of engaging with these substances since the, you know, the 90s and my teenaged years, like the idea that, you know, I should have a, a therapist riding shotgun while I'm, I'm taking psychedelic drugs. Certainly, if somebody, if this does prove to be evidence-based and, and efficacious and, and, and better, performing better than the standard of care to a, a rigorous degree, uh, I don't want to deny anybody else that. But I still remember if you were talking to a mental health professional um, while under the influence of psychedelics, um, you were likely involuntarily committed into a psych ward at, at an emergency room, you know, how quickly things turn. I would just say that, you know, if we're going to do um, medical interventions using psychedelics, then it needs to be held to rigorous standards. And you can't have people who have already made up their mind um, as to its efficacy, setting the agenda and pushing everything through um, while paying, playing fast and loose with the data. Oh, there's many, many examples of this happening. What am I excited about? What am I hopeful about? I'm hopeful that there's greater scrutiny towards this so that if there is, if there's there, there, um, it can be sussed out. And I would just say, because I, I, we do get asked a lot, like, who are the good 
you know, the good actors, the good players in the space. And there definitely are a lot of, you know, well-intentioned, smart people asking good questions and and sticking to like research and being open-minded and humble and all the rest. But there's not a lot of safeguards in place right now to prevent like bad actors from coming in and taking advantage of people. Like one, one example is like the, there's a lot of people who talk about like hurting is healing with psychedelics. Even just recently, a few days ago, there was an op-ed in the Washington post talking about psychedelics for climate grief. And it was, it was describing, you know, psychedelics let you go into the, the bad emotions, the pain that you usually avoid and actually address that. And I do think that there is some truth to that, but because there's the field is so new and there's no real standards, those kinds of like, like talking points allow for people to come in and be really messed up and then say, oh, well, whatever's coming up for you that you don't like, and that's making you suffer. Like that's actually good. You're, you're, you're healing this, this, this pain that I'm making you feel is like a positive thing. So that's one example of like why we're generally hesitant to kind of recommend specific groups or places just because there's like the, the, the nuance has not been completely developed in terms of how some of the common talking points can be misused or can go wrong if they're not used in the right hands, whether intentionally or accidentally. And because of that, I would always kind of point to some of the, the commons based mutual aid based sources like drug forums online, like the DMT Nexus, like places where people are openly sharing stuff that they've learned and things that they've realized for making mistakes and kind of giving that not for the purposes of profit or becoming the next thought leader, but through genuine sharing and wanting people to to be able to be safe and to make intentional consensual decisions around their drug use in their communities. So that's the kind of thing that I am most excited about personally, even though it's kind of been around longer than the field as we know it, the medical field has been. (laughs) 